Gracious and Holy Father, we know that we are sinners in need of much grace. We know that if there's going to be any hope for any of us to change, that hope is in you alone. Father, our own strategies and our own external behavior modification might work for a season, but will not produce the lasting change that we need. Father, many of us understand that we have been saved by grace, but we do not comprehend how that grace actually meets us in the day-to-day of our lives. Father, I pray that we would be faithful servants of you, and for that to take place, we know that we all need a heart change. We all need to be readjusted to set our sights on you and to be careful about how our circumstances might be changing us in a negative or positive way. Lord, illuminate this passage to us. Holy Spirit, show us things we haven't seen before. Convict us, encourage us this morning. May your gospel give us the great hope we need to be mighty servants for you this year and for the rest of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. I want to start the sermon with a few sketches of some people you might run across in church and ministry. We have Al, a retired police officer who has been in and out of church his entire life. He looks to God for guidance in times of trouble, but more often turns to television and car shows as a means of escape from the pressures he faced over his long career in the police force. Al reads his Bible and even likes to talk about God, especially emphasizing how our nation has gone downhill since Reagan. Al is lonely, but hates even more the idea of letting people get to know him and his flaws. Rather than viewing his retirement as an opportunity to engage in active church life and use his years of experience to disciple younger men, Al is content focusing on his hobbies and the relationships he has with his grandchildren. Al's prayer life is dominated by requests for healing from his arthritis, and he's starting to doubt if that prayer actually works. Another sketch of a person, Jenny. Jenny is a stay-at-home mom and a self-proclaimed perfectionist. She's active in the women's ministry at her church and prides herself on maintaining an active social calendar. Jenny always wears a big smile and makes sure that her kids are never out of line in public. While Jenny's life is fitting the picture she always had in her mind, shaped by ample Pinterest boards, style magazines, and homeschooling books, the problem is that her heart is rarely at peace. Maybe when the kids are at all all nap, but the constant calendaring, meal prep, and crowd control of her kids has worn Jenny into the ground. And she sometimes daydreams about what life would look like if she either lowered, lowered her standards or didn't have kids at all. Last sketch of a person I want to hold before you is a guy named Chris. Chris is a 40-year-old father of three kids, and he is as stable as they come. He coaches his kids' little league teams and even leads Bible studies in his church. Chris has been at the same company for 15 years, doing the same administrative tasks. He feels like his soul is numbed by the monotony, and it doesn't help that turning 40 made him ask existential questions like, Is this all there is to life? The passion he once had to pursue his wife romantically, boldly share the gospel with strangers, and make an impact at church has all been extinguished. Chris knows theologically about the revolutionary kingdom impact of Jesus, but fails to see any of that work practically taking place in his life. Discouragement has set in in his spiritual life. And Chris has... It's led Chris to seeking excitement and vitality in watching sports and dreaming of his next vacation. So we have three sketches, and the reason I put these people before you is that these are people that you are likely to run across in your time in ministry. And um, as I was thinking about how this shrub looks and how the tree looks from the passage we just read, I think it helps if we actually have illustrations of people um, because we can see plant life but I know that our sinful hearts sometimes have a hard time taking the examples that are given to us and connecting them to the real daily life in each one of our lives. So let's keep these people in the back of our minds as we're hearing this passage. We heard that serving the Lord is a non-negotiable for us as a church, but in order for us to serve the Lord faithfully, we all 
need change. Lasting heart change. The universal question everyone is asking, not just those in the church, but those outside, is why do people do the things they do, and how do people change? Why do people do the things they do, and how do people change? The simple illustration that we have today of a a brittle shrub and a, a fruitful tree demonstrates spiritual realities that point to why some change and why others don't in the exact same circumstances. Historically, Jeremiah, 600 years before Christ came on the scene, brought this very message to the people of Israel because they needed a change. It was a really crazy political time. Assyria was on the downfall. Babylon was on the rise. And after King Josiah, there weren't many good kings left in in Israel and in Judah. And so they were turning to idols. They were turning to these these foreign nations and armies for protection against Babylon rather than turning to the living God that had made covenant with them. So that's the setting that Jeremiah approaches, and that's not unlike our setting today. We are in a a tumultuous political era, and although we might not have foreign armies trying to uh, to ravage our nation right now, you have an enemy, Satan, who's trying to ravage your life. You all need protection. You all need security. Everyone gets that and knows that. This morning, we'll look at where do we turn in times of protection, when we need protection. Where, Where does our heart turn? This morning, we'll look at our own situation and the challenges we face, and we'll see that we must trust the Lord as our sole life source to thrive in life's droughts. So we'll see how vital it is from the passage this morning that we trust the Lord alone as our life source so that you and I can thrive in life's droughts. We'll see how that impacts us By way of contrasting imagery, we'll look first at this this brittle shrub, and then we'll look at the vibrant tree. And then finally, we'll ask, how does one change? How can I go? Am I just relegated to being a shrub my entire life? Is it possible for me to be this tree with green leaves? And we'll ask, is there power to change? And if so, how? So first, let's look at the shrub's plight in verses 5 and 6 of your passage. It says, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So we open here saying that the person who turns away from the Lord, who puts his, his strength and his trust in flesh and man, he's cursed. Now, is this cursing, you think, just a a natural outworking of of living an unfavorable life? No. This curse is a pronouncement of divine discipline from the covenant God, Yahweh, to his people. Backing up a few steps, if you remember in Deuteronomy 28.15, we have the promise of this curse. God promises his nation, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command to you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Read the rest of that chapter and you'll see how vivid the detail is of these curses that come upon the nation of Israel. This cycle is repeated time and time again in the book of Judges, throughout the kings, and here, um, near after King Josiah in the time of Jeremiah, it's repeated again. So this cursing, you, and some, sometimes we are prone to say, well, you know, fortune just isn't in my, in my corner right now, or uh, you know, life is throwing some hard stuff at me right now. But what we see is that when this nation and when you and I turn away from the Lord, God loves us enough to have divine punishment and discipline to bring upon us. That we are cursed when we cut ourselves off from the life source that is God himself. It says that we, make, we trust in man and make flesh our strength. So what is this trusting in a man? Very simply put, it's needing people, needing them for you rather than loving them for the glory of God and for their good. We are very prone to trust in man. It's one of those perversions that God has given us families, given us friends, people to support us. He's given us a church to have this great community. And yet we are so good at taking a good gift and and just tweaking it slightly, going from being supported and encouraged by man to then needing their praise, needing their affirmation, 
needing what they say about us to build us up so that we have our, our illusion of security rather than getting that security solely from the gospel. It says we make flesh our strength. So this is, when you hear flesh, I don't want you to just think about our skin and our bones or what one person does, but it's anything that creation, that we as humans even produce. So if you put your faith in science, if you put it in philosophy, if you put it in your, your bank account, if you put it in anything that flesh can create, you are making flesh your strength. And so this is not just trusting in other men for your security, but it's also self-reliance as well. I think the biggest way that we do this, and we see this in the church today, is we become self-reliant. We say, God, I need you to help me with X, Y, Z, but you better not touch the idols of my heart. God, I don't, I, my pride wants to keep other people from really knowing me, and I think that I can handle this on my own, and we make flesh our strength grievously. We do this in many ways, both big and small. Some big ways that we make flesh our strength. We have a, a pattern of spending money on things to make ourselves happy at the expense of others and generosity that we could be giving. We, like we saw in this, the sketch of Jenny, she had made perfectionism her strength. She thought that if she had her kids all perfectly in line and she had her, her calendar perfectly planned out, and she could have a sense of, oh, I'm, all is right with the world, and I, and I have confidence, and I have strength today. This morning, I will wake up, and I will be happy, and I will have strength, because I have it all together. Big ways. Also, some small ways as well. I mean, so this, this is macro and micro. So think about if you were to wake up and, and start a job, and you were to go sit at your desk, and all your papers were disorganized and strewn all over the place, or as a parent, if you wake up and Legos are all over the floor, there's a sink full of dishes, the mess on the outside, the external mess, has a way of making it inside our hearts and making a mess of things inside here. Rather than like being like Jesus and, and following him to step into the mess, to be completely content and at peace with, with the perfection of God and seeking to change it, to, to organize it and use our creativity, we allow the messes of life, whether it's a physical thing or whether it's a relational mess, we allow those to get inside and impact how we work. And in the state of our heart, if we're discouraged, if we're depressed, or if we can have hope for the day, knowing that God is in the business of transforming and changing. So it's big things and little things that we do to make flesh our strength. It says here in verse 5 at the end, it says, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Two things I want you to realize from this, of our heart turning away from the Lord. First, heart here implies that the nation of Israel and Judah, they could have very well been still going to the altar, still going to the temple, doing their regular temple sacrifices, doing their normal prayers, going through all of the different various festivals and seasons, and yet they could have been doing it with a dead heart. God sees the heart. Sometimes we can fool men, can't we? This should be a warning to each one of us that we can still fulfill our ministry, do our obligations, even read the Bible, even disciple others, and yet our heart can be totally disengaged from God. This should be a great warning for each of us. His heart is turned away from the Lord. This implies that that this nation and this hearts, this, in our hearts, were once turned toward the Lord. If we're going to turn away, we, want, we must first be looking at him. So Israel was God's nation. They knew his character through, through the law given through Moses. They, they knew his, what he was like through the prophets declaring what he was like. These people knew God. Maybe not all of them were truly saved or regenerate, but these people were aware of this covenant God, Yahweh. And so for them to see how he delivered them from the, the slavery of the Egyptians, to see how he provided manna in the wilderness and water, and how he's never let his people down, how he's continued to fulfill the promise of Abraham, to know this faithful God and yet to still turn away is the height of arrogance. Turning away is both a rejection of God's word and it's believing that his promises won't come to fruition. This is the exact same lie that Adam and Eve took 
the very first sin in the garden. They, they doubted God's word. It was twisted by Satan. And they didn't believe God's promises. They didn't believe that the other trees were good enough to eat. They wanted the one that God said no to. We do the same when our hearts, hearts turn from God. Now, we might not flat out reject the word of God, but like Adam and Eve, we can, we can get it twisted in our minds. And if it's not memorized, and if it's not known, Satan can use what we know and twist it slightly to discourage us and get us to turn away from God. Like we saw in some of these examples, at times life can get hopeless, life can get bleak, and we are tempted to not trust the promises of God. So what are the consequences when we do this? We are, as this passage says, like a shrub in the desert. Now how many of you have made that blistering hot drive from Los Angeles to Phoenix in your life? How many of you have experienced Highway 10? Any of you out there? Yeah, some of you. So if you have driven across the Mojave Desert, um, you know what these shrubs look like. They're, they're spotted throughout, and they're, you know, it's, inter- it's kind of interesting to look at something other than just uh, sand, but it's, it's ugly, right? They're brittle. They, at times, get so dried out that they turn into tumbleweeds and just disconnect altogether and just roll around. They're not oftentimes together. They're, they're not producing anything. They're not providing any beauty or, or any life or any fruit for any animals. They're just there, withering away in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the heat. There's the consequence of where they're planted. It's the consequence of where they're planted. They don't see any good come, as it says in verse 6. It says that this shrub in the desert shall not see any good come. Now, when I first read this, my mind immediately went to the fact that, oh, well, they're not seeing any good come from their own, from their own selves. That these, these shrubs are not producing any fruit. But then whenever I consulted my, my Hebrew expert, Kirk Booth, and whenever I looked at some various translations, I saw that um, what, what the ESV kind of misses here is that when it says this shrub isn't seeing any good come, it's not from itself, but it's not seeing any of the prosperity and goodness that God is, has bestowed upon it. What do I mean? That it lives in such a parched, dry salt land that even if rain happens to come in this desert on this shrub, it doesn't even get any of the benefits or blessings from this rain. The land around it and the, sur- the environment it's in immediately soaks it up and it does not benefit this shrub at all. The people Jeremiah was speaking to were exactly like this. God was so gracious to send a prophet to his people to call them to repentance, to turn away from the, their, their idolatry, which would kill them and turn them to the living God for, for a renewed relationship. And yet this goodness that Jeremiah was bringing they were blind to. They didn't see it as goodness. They saw it, who's this annoying young guy who's coming and yelling at us? They did not see the goodness of God for what it was. We see this magnified in the ministry of Jesus, don't we? Jesus came and, and walked amongst people, healing the sick, preaching the good news of this upside-down kingdom, that the last could be first and the first would be last, and, and providing salvation the hope of Israel, this Messiah that they had longed for and prayed for, came. And what did the religious elite think of him? This is not good coming. God sent a beautiful rain to, to, take, to, to bless his people, and they saw it. They didn't see it as good. They said, nah, I, I don't want to hear this. Because they had already disconnected themselves from the life source, they had turned to, their, to flesh as their strength, turned away from trusting the Lord, they did not see any good come. How many of you are my pessimists in the room? How many of you are my pessimists? We, like the Pharisees, like this shrub, a lot of times have a hard time seeing the good around us. We looked at last, a few weeks ago in biblical counseling, that if we're going to pray for God to guard our heart and mind from anxiety, what precedes that is, is with thanksgiving. That we, as sinners get so turned to, to the flesh and to our own strength that we don't even see the, the goodness uh, that God has in our lives. We see the, the, the bad things in our lives. As we saw from last week, even the bad things are, are God's goodness to grow us and sanctify us, blessings from the cross, and yet we're not satisfied with them. When we, we, we grumble against God for bringing these bad things in our life and we we highlight them and, can, and can't see even the goodness in front of our face. So this is a result of turning away from the Lord.
says this person also lives in an uninhabited salt land. Uninhabited salt land. So not only are they not benefited from the rain and the goodness of God, but they're alone. They are isolated. They are in an uninhabited wilderness. How many of you have ever felt lonely, have felt parched, have felt like you're the only one going through your struggle? Part of that is on the church. Sometimes the ch- as a church we fail to, to help people and to visit people and to, to provide the relationships that we should. But it says here that a lot of times this is just an outworking and a result of us first turning away from God. The irony here is that this person who says, I'm going to make flesh my strength, I'm going to trust man and people to fulfill my needs, they are the people who try to surround themselves with other people to make them happy, they end up the most lonely. What, what an irony that is, that they think that people can help them, and then they, they put God-like expectations on people and on flesh, and then they fail, and then they wind up alone. Or they might put their trust in a, in a, in a spouse or a friend who has amazing patience, and then a person might strive with them for a long time, being their, their, their partial Messiah, helping them out, but then eventually that person is going to get worn out by being the Messiah in that other person's life, and they're going to not want to be there all the time, and that, that shrub will end up lonely. And so we have to be very careful. If you feel loneliness in your life, if you feel like you're withdrawn from community, before you're quick to blame the church or blame your friends or your family for not calling you, ask yourself, have I turned from the Lord? Am I like this shrub who's dwelling in the uninhabited salt lands? We saw that uh, in our examples here, that Al, the elderly retired policeman, he, he would rather be alone with his television than to let people into his life, to, to actually have people get to know him, because his pride and his trust in himself and his self-reliance in his flesh prevented growth, prevented change, and prevented community. We need to be warned by that. We need to be, be very careful that even when we don't feel like being around people, we must place ourselves in community. We must first turn to the Lord, knowing that people are not the ultimate cure. God is the ultimate cure for loneliness. That when God is with you, he is all-satisfying. And his real relationship in our lives should prevent us from being lonely. So that's another consequence of turning away from the Lord. So in what ways does this describe your life? Looking at the shrub here, looking at some of the the sketches of people I gave to you, in what ways can you relate? Are you burnt out? Are you spiritually parched right now? Are you lonely? Or have you ever been? Thankfully, this isn't the end of the story for Judah, and it doesn't have to be the end of the story for you. Remember, Jeremiah's purpose was to call the nation to repentance and also hold out hope for them. So here in this description of the blessed man, Jeremiah holds out hope for us. There's great hope that this, this picture of the tree against, this, against the, the brittle shrub, this picture of a tree, can be you. So let's look at it together. We see in verses 7 and 8, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. It doesn't cease to bear fruit. So our second point, the tree's fruit. This is the blessed man, and like the cursed person, this is, being blessed isn't just, oh, good fortune and favor doesn't happen to just be the result of this person's actions. No, but this blessing is a divine pronouncement by God on those who trust in him. This was also a covenant promise in Deuteronomy 28. It was fulfilled throughout the nation of Israel. And it's even extended and magnified in the new covenant in Christ to us. That if for those who trust in the Lord and those who place their faith in Christ, we can indeed be blessed. We had a wonderful treatment of that last week in, from Galatians. The pastor told us that so many blessings, every blessing, comes from the cross, and that should be our only boast. And even the hard things in life are blessings. So this is a blessed man, and, and we can be blessed people by the grace of God. What makes them blessed? It says that their trust is in the Lord. And their trust is the Lord. Now, are we just parsing words here? No, let's look and see what this means. Their trust is in the Lord. So, first and foremost, unlike the cursed man who thinks that they have to go to Assyria and Egypt for protection, the blessed man 
knows the character of God. He knows and knows and trusts deep down that this God who has created him and who's running the universe is, at the end of the day, trustworthy. Trustworthy not only to, to allow the priests and the sacrifices and the religious to be blessed, but, but this God is sovereign over all of the, the diseases that our parents might get when we have to take our kids to the ER, that, that the blessed person can be blessed even when those family members that they love so dearly turn away from them, that this person believes that God is sufficient to, to provide for every aspect of life, that nothing is outside the sovereignty and purview of God. This blessed man believes that in his heart. And not only does he believe that God can, can deliver him out of his negative circumstances and give him what he wants and give him what's good, but it says here that his not, trust is not only in the Lord, but his trust is the Lord. What does that mean? It means that the blessed man isn't only asking God to be the power and strength to get something, but he's saying the thing I want most, the end and the object of my worship, is you, the Lord, yourself. Do you see that distinction there? Some of us can trust in the Lord for, for health. We can pray for uh, a job or money. And God, being, being one of his children and, and having access to, to the Father, he can graciously grant that. And that's, and that's wonderful that we pray to him with everything. But even more so than that, what we need to get that the blessed man who's truly rooted by the streams, who's going to thrive even in the, the, the hardest droughts in life, their security is wrapped up in God. That their goal in life is what the Lord is the Lord himself. It is seeing his name magnified. It is trusting that, that at the end of the day, he will reign in heaven and that whatever problems are in this life will eventually go away. Is your object, is the object of your worship, is what gets you up in the morning and is what you're striving toward, is it the Lord himself? Or is it a byproduct of one of the blessings of the Lord? Make that clear in your mind. Because that can be a way that, oh, I say, I tr I'm trusting in the Lord for this or that to happen to me. Well, why do you want this or that thing? Is it, is it in line with the Lord? Or do you want God most? Is God a means to the end of having more money? Or is your money a means to the end of worshiping God more fully? You see that? See the difference there? And I pray that that is our, the case for our church and in our lives. We make, must make the, the Lord our trust. So we have another picture here that this person is like a tree planted by water. He sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. So the difference here between the shrub and the tree is not the circumstances, is it? Both have an arid heat situation and circumstance and environment. Both have the same annoying people in their lives. Both have the same health problems. Both have the same difficulties. Both have the same dreams that have been dashed. The circumstances are, are the same here. That, that heat is coming on this tree, like the heat that came in, in this desert to the shrub. So what is the difference? We see here that the big difference is that the tree's root determines its fruit. Now, at the, at the sake or risk of being cheesy, Use that as a mnemonic to memorize it, to know that, to say, my root will dictate my fruit. Have that in your mind. My root, my heart, what I value most will ultimately and be the primary factor to determine what the fruit of my life. Now, I know that's so simple and elementary, but so many times we, we complain about the fruit we see in our lives or say, man, I'm really struggling or I'm depressed because this and that person did this or that to me or or I'm not following God as much right now because things are really hard at work and I'm not getting much sleep. We t we're so quick to take our circumstances and to say that I'm a victim. And I can't, I'm not worshiping God like I should right now, but could, how could anyone say that I should in my, in my circumstances? No one must understand. So we have to see that the difference between the shrub and the tree is the location of, this, of the root. This, this changes everything about these two plants. How is the tree different? The tree is different in stability. So a wind, a gust of wind, isn't going to take this tree and turn it into a tumbleweed. The ability to bear fruit, this shrub isn't providing any fruit, is it? It's not helping anyone else. It's so totally self-consumed. 
unlike the tree that has the ability to bless others. It's useful. Trees can provide shade. Whereas the person who's turned away from the Lord, even though they might still be going to the temple and doing their thing, they're, they're no longer useful to God. God. God uses humble vessels. The growth potential is a huge difference in these two plants. Think about a tree that you, you plant and Maybe some of you who are, who are a little bit older have gone back to your hometown or maybe to your original house, and you see trees in your neighborhood or trees in your front yard that are massive now, that were just saplings whenever you were a kid. And that's an amazing to see, thing to see. So the growth potential is, is drastically different in these two plants because the root of the tree, the heart of the person. The shrub isn't going anywhere. And, and many of you have related to this. You've had seasons of plateau, and you've had seasons of, of loneliness, and you feel like I'm spiritually parched, and, and you're not seeing much growth, growth at all. And it's not because God isn't faithful, but it's be, and it's not because your circumstances are really hard. It's because you've cut yourself off from the life source. This tree is different because it can grow and to be a glorious pillar in the church and a blessing to others in Christ, and, and can even spark revival a great man like, like Whitfield in history were men that, that God graciously saved and planted them by the streams of water and used to save hundreds of thousands of people. Do you think God could use you to be someone like that? Now, don't look to your own abilities, but look to God's faithfulness. Indeed, he can use any of us, any humble servant, to have great growth potential. And finally, and most importantly, the difference between the tree and the shrub is that it's drought-resistant. I know that we have gone through a season of drought here in California, and thankfully we've had all these rains. Not, not good that there's been flooding and people displaced from the houses and stuff like that, but it is a blessing that it seems as though the drought is over. But when we were going through the drought, we were all kind of like, okay, well, you know, I can't water my yard. You know, that stinks. Um, I can't wash my car. But what we didn't think about was the, the big impact of What's going to happen to California if, if this drought isn't over and it continues to run its course? Things could get really, really hairy in your situation. You might be forced to move to a different place or city, um, and things could get really tumultuous. And so I think that we got a little picture of what it means to be drought-resistant. Many people replaced their, their yard and their regular plants with drought-resistant plants. And so you know that these things are, 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 um, are hardy. They're not going to dry up in the sun. And they're not going to wither away whenever the, the slightest circumstance um, is thrown at it um, and tries to knock it off. We must be these drought-resistant trees, not because we are strong in ourselves, but because of where we shoot our roots to. It says here that in verse 8, this tree planted by the water sends out its roots by the stream. So ask yourself right now, where does your heart look for nourishment? Where do you look for encouragement on those hard days? Whenever your ministry is hard or whenever your, your situation at work is tough, do you check the stock prices at, at, your, at your company to see, okay, am I getting some more money today? Do you um, remind yourself that the weekend is almost here and you use the power of this, this elusive weekend to, to draw some of that power back into your Wednesday to say, I'm going to get through this hump day? Um, and I'm going to get through the week because this is my strength. Do you, like Chris, this middle, this 40-year-old man, um, find excitement and vitality in things like sports or hobbies um, or, or TV shows that, that you think are, are providing interest in life and adding flavor to your life that God is, is not providing for you? Ask yourself, where do you are pr- practically send your roots in times of discouragement, loneliness, and depression. This heat that comes, don't get me wrong, yes, it is hard, difficult trials, but it's also blessings too. Sometimes the circumstances in our life, if someone comes upon, let's say, a big inheritance, that might be just as temptation to, to sin as a difficult circumstance in someone's life, to turn away from God. Someone can take that money and squander it like the prodigal son and turn away. So, don't be fooled into thinking, oh, just the hard things in my life cause me to um, reveal my root. But it's even the good things that happen in your life, the blessings that sometimes reveal that you are not trusting in God. 
physical problems, being sinned against, Satan's attacks, false counsel are all different forms that this heat can take in your life. And if you are not trusting in the Lord, drinking from his, the fountain of truth that is his word, we see as well in Psalm 1, that on his law you're meditating day and night. If that is not you, then you don't have much chance to be drought resistant. You'll go back to that shrub. The good news is that by the grace of God, I've seen many saved. Many of you in this church I've seen go through extremely difficult trials. And I've been so encouraged by the way that you've dealt with them. Seeing your faith grow in Christ, seeing that, that testing of your faith produce steadfast in you has been a great joy to me. So thank you for that. And I praise God for the work he's doing in and through you. We must continue to check our leaves to make sure that they are green and vital. It says later in verse 8 that part of this tree is that its leaves remain green. They don't wither. And also, it's not anxious in the year of drought. Fear, worry, and anxiety are things that so quickly and easily creep up on us. And things that we can so easily dismiss as, oh, just, just natural emotions. When really they're rooted in a distrust of a sovereign Lord. Green leaves are a sign of health and vitality. So I know that sometimes we're able to hide it. Sometimes we staple fruit onto our tree, thinking that we can fool people. I know it's a crazy image, but think about if you have, let's say, a, a bad harvest of apples one year, and they're mealy and they're gross, and the next spring comes around, and you take a bushel of good apples you got at the store with a staple gun, and you try to staple them to that tree. You say, well, look, we have good apples now. Well, wait a week. Those apples are going to get, get brown and, and moldy, and they're going to fall, and those aren't going to be good apples. You know very well that in order to get good apples, you're going to need to, it's, it's a root problem with that tree. You're going to either have to plant a new tree or, or get some expert out to look at, look at the health of your tree. We sometimes, in wanting people to think that we have this green, vital, uh, this, this green leaf in our life that we're doing well, we, we take shortcuts we want people to think, we put, like, like in our example, um, the, the Jenny stay-at-home mom puts a smile on her face, and she makes her kids are orderly on the, uh, in, in public so that people aren't actually trying to get at her heart and get to know her and make sure that her root is in the right place. We are good at that, aren't we? We're good at hiding. We're good at faking having the, the, the green leaves, and we're good at fruit stapling, going, going the, the short route. Um, trying to go an outside-in approach rather than getting at the root and the heart of why we might not be joyful, why we may not have that peace that transcends all understanding. And finally, a mark of this tree, and I pray that it's a mark for each one of us, is that it bears fruit. It bears fruit. So because it has a secure root, it's not anxious or fearful of the external heat and circumstances coming on it. It continues to bear fruit because those roots have gone down near that life-giving stream, and it's sucking up those nutrients, sucking up um, all of the, the vitality from that stream, and that is what is fueling, empowering, and encouraging fruit to continue to be born. It has sent its roots out. It's not only worshiping God because it's relying on him, but the fruit that it's producing is blessing others. And I think that's one of the things we have to be careful of is um, one of the first things that's going to go is that you're going to stop blessing others. And you're going you're to start to turn inward. And that will be an indicator that your trust has, has, has turned to flesh and man and yourself. And you've cut yourself off from life source when you're not giving to others. Some ways that we can be like this tree when we're ridiculed by our family for our faith, and yet we still love them, we still spend time with them, we still share the gospel with them, that's producing fruit in a drought. The person who gets diagnosed with cancer, and they seek to trust in Christ, to continue to press into his word and show those around him, and show the non-believing friends he or she has, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, and that death has lost its sting and they don't fear it like a non-believer would. That is a tree that is producing fruit in a drought. We must trust the Lord as our life source to thrive through all of life's droughts. Amen? So now that we've seen these two pictures, 
must finally ask, what is our ability to change? How can we change? We recognize that there are these two types of people. We recognize that it is a heart problem. So what hope do we have? And so I, I hope you're with me this morning. We're, we're going to close it out. And if you haven't been listening up to this point, tune your, ear, tune your ears in now. The universal question that all people are asking outside of these walls, in, in the universities, in the classrooms, in the synagogues, in the mosques, across the street at Pete's, people are asking the question, why do you do, why do people do the things they do, and how can people change? We, brothers and sisters, have the answer. We have the answer right here, and it's the gospel. So we ask, how did this tree get there? How is it different than the shrub? Well, we know it's the placement of the root, but did this tree happen to get up and walk like an ant to the river and plant itself and, and by this tree because it saw that the nourishment was good by the stream? No, it didn't, did it? It was planted, which is a, a good word, but I think an even better translation of the Hebrew word shethal for planted is transplanted. Transplanted, if you look that up uh, in the Hebrew, is what, is what this Hebrew word shethal means in this passage. What this tells us and what this tips us off at is that each one of us, if we are to be these life-giving trees, we did not get there on our own. We did not get there because we're smarter, because of our heritage. But God, in his mercy, took you when you were that brittle shrub, and he transplanted you, he dug you up, and he planted you by his stream, by his grace. How glorious, amen? He's the one who transplants. So, before you, you start to look at steps for change, before you start to do an outward and approach, the first answer to this question is how do we change? By the pure grace of God. It's God who initiates that work in each one of our lives, and it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. I think sometimes when we conclude sermons, we want to give a list of imperatives. Okay, now do this, this, and this, which are good things we should do. The Bible and Paul and his letters lots of times leads with imperatives. But what I want to leave you resonating with this morning is not a list of imperatives, although there are many, is I want you to leave this morning taking a big drink of the glass of the grace of God. I want you to say thank you, God, for transplanting me out of the desert I was in and putting me by the stream. God, you are the worker in my life who has done this. And it's only by your grace that I can change and I can grow and that I can trust in you. The source of my trust, the reason why I trusted, isn't my own free will. No, it's not. Our will was in bondage since the fall of Adam. The reason why any of us can be this man who trusts in the Lord and is blessed is because the Father initiates that work. That is Reformed theology at its most practical, beautiful expression. That it's God who initiates this trust. And he's the one who transplants us so that we as people can change. So if you see people around you in your life, if you have family members, kids, friends that annoy you and that you see are living a life that is on the highway to hell, before you step in and try to change them, before you say they just need to stop doing this drug, they just need to stop watching this thing, you need to pray for them. Pray that the grace of God would come into their life and that God would do a mighty work and initiate that on their behalf and that he would save them. Because it's only, that, it's only for his grace that you are in the position you're in and you can see truth for what it is. But with that said, is that it? No. You might be tempted to say, Kurt, well then should I just sit and wait for grace to happen? I should wait on the Lord, right? Well, you should wait on the Lord. But the way the Bible describes appropriating grace to each of our lives is not just by merely being lazy and waiting around for God to do something. God, I'm not going to change, so I'm just going to sit here. Maybe in my 70s or something, you'll, you'll change me. No, that is not it at all. The way that we see grace, the way we experience grace, is by viewing Christ clearly on the cross. The way that you and I are changed, and the way that we can even receive grace, is by being made right with God. We have to be made right first, and the way that we're made right is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, 
was God in the flesh. He came into our world, and guess what? He stepped into a mess, and he didn't let the outside mess of the Pharisees and the needy disciples impact his heart, did he? Christ was the consummate tree that was planted perfectly by the streams of water, retreated to prayer with God, to, to, to connect with him, made sure that he was drawing from, from God and for his strength every moment of every day. He saw the mess, was grieved by it, but was not like the shrub that, that turns away from God. And this beautiful Savior, this lover of our souls, he went to the cross. You and I deserve the covenant curse of Deuteronomy 28. You and I have turned away from him. We all have. We've all chosen things that, to satisfy us other than God. And yet Christ said, I will be a curse on their behalf. I will climb on that tree, I will climb on that cross, and I will become a curse. It was on the cross. Do you remember the words of Christ? He said, I thirst. I thirst. Christ said that, not because he physically thirsted, I'm sure he did, but he had a, a spiritual thirst of feeling the weight of sin upon himself, knowing how painful it would be to have the Father impute all of your sin and my sin on the shoulders of Christ and on himself, that he himself became sin, who knew no sin, so that you and I could be his righteousness. He said, I thirst, so that you and I could be eternally satisfied with the living waters of Christ. Amen? Isn't that glorious? When we see that Christ floated above all of life's difficult circumstances, we see how he related to, to demon possession, leprosy, um, you know, hunger, thirst, all the things that we get bent out of shape about, all the circumstances that make us grumble against God. We see how he dealt with those and how he was able to trust God and the fact that he died on our behalf and then rose again three days later and, later and imputed his, his presence of the Holy Spirit and his power to us, we see that we too in turn can be like Christ. We, have, we now have the power, if we repent and trust in him, to have these new hearts that know where the stream is, to shoot our roots down to the stream, to be nourished by the word of God, by the presence of God, and by his grace seen in the people of God. Many of you are planted by the stream Many of you have, have been saved by the grace of God. But many of you are still neglecting to shoot out your roots and engage God in heartfelt dependence. Right now, I want you to think about this. Answer this question for me. If only fill in the blank, my life would be better. If only blank, then things would be okay. If only blank, I would be satisfied. If only blank, I would be happy. I want you to think about that. And think now, but also think after the sermon. Meditate on this. Think about the things and the circumstances in your life. You said, if these circumstances, what, if the pressure of this heat wasn't so hot, if I could just get out from under, if I could just squirm out from underneath this, this oppressive heat, find some shade somewhere, change my circumstances, get inside, get some air conditioning, then I wouldn't be such a grouchy person. Then I wouldn't be so angry. Then I wouldn't be so lonely. The way you answer that question will tell you where you practically send your roots out on a daily basis. It's easy, easy for us as evangelicals to trust in Christ for our past forgiveness of sins and for our future salvation. But we have a hard time applying the life-changing gospel to the here and now. You must take the gospel and you must apply it to the here and now and see how it is sufficient for all life, for all godliness, that that Christ is the great high priest that can sympathize with, with all of the things happening in your life right now. And he can give you the, his living waters to trust in God, to have God be your trust, to thrive in the midst of life's droughts, to give you a trust in God that is alien to you, that is not on your own, but a tr his trust in God he can give to you. Let's not be in the business of fruit stapling, brothers and sisters. Let's not fake it. But let's be transparent. Let's repent of those things that we know are keeping us from fully trusting God. And I pray that if we are uprooted, 
if we take a look at where our root is planted, then that will impact our fruit. And then we can be those servants of the Lord that we spent the last weeks looking at. We can be those glorious people that change ourselves and are then equipped and blessed to, to go and change others, to change Cambrian Park, to change your families, to see this, this church grow and thrive and disciples be made and multiplied and sent out to, to the ends of the earth to unreached people. All the things that we want to do here as a church can happen. And by the, by the grace of God, I pray it does. It's going to take obedience on your part. It's going to take you praying that, that God's grace would reveal to you the ways in which you trust in the flesh and make man your strength. Remember that it's not your circumstances that are giving you bad fruit. The root is the primary factor in impacting your fruit. That root fruit principle, I want you to have solid in your mind. By God's grace, the people that we saw at the beginning, Al, the retired police officer, Jenny, the stay-at-home mom, Chris, the 40-year-old man, I pray that these sketches of these people can see how they've been more shaped by their outer circumstances than the Christ they say they believe in. And through repentance and faith, experience the transformation that comes from the streams of living water. My hope is that God will do that for each one of you this morning as well. Let's pray. Father, change us. Father, help us to see even the small ways that throughout our day we are tempted to get agitated and annoyed and to grumble against you and to turn away from you. Help us to see your salvation as sufficient for providing of all of our daily needs. Lord, I pray that we would not be blind to your goodness in our lives. We would not be like these shrubs. But I pray, God, that even when the, the worst drought comes, even when the most bleak circumstances come to us in our lives, I pray that we would be able to thrive and bear fruit because we are planted by your streams. Equip us to be servants of you, God. Servants that help others work through the mess of life. Help others see how they've been trying to modify their behavior without addressing the heart issues. Lord, we know that we don't need a better instructor. We don't need a better plan. But Lord, we need a redeemer. So redeem us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.